This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two Defense Department veterans are new nominees for the Biden administration's Pentagon team. Frank Kendall's the nominee to become Air Force Secretary. He served as Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics in the Obama administration. Heidi Hsu will return to the Pentagon as Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering if the Senate confirms her. She's former Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology. She was a vice president at Raytheon before she became the Army's acquisition leader. Federal contractors will have to pay all their workers $15 an hour under an executive order President Biden signed Tuesday. Agencies will have until next January 30th to include the requirement in contract solicitations. GovExec reports the administration will require the wage in contracts by next March 30th. The F-35 program will cost the Defense Department tens of billions of dollars in sustainment costs, according to the Government Accountability Office. That would make the program unaffordable based on what the services that fly the plane project they'll have to spend on it. Roman Schweitzer is senior aerospace and defense policy analyst at Callan & Company. Roman, welcome. It's great to see you. Um, I look at the GAO's numbers. They, they just are mind-boggling. Is that the main reason that you're writing in your most recent uh, commentary, uh, the F-35s entered a new risk period? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, I, I think, you know, we've, we've moved into a stage where the program is fielding significant numbers of aircraft, uh, 600 uh, out in the world today uh, with U.S. and, uh, and allied nations. Uh, that number is going to almost double up around uh, 1,100 in the, in the next two years. So we're sort of up at a, at a full rate, uh, and that fleet is, uh, is out and around the world operating. Uh, and so with that, uh, it's the spares and logistics and maintenance that goes with it, uh, and, uh, and it's yet to kind of come down that cost curve. Uh, and so it's very reminiscent in my mind of when the program shifted from research and development into procurement. Uh, there were a number of issues, whether it was completing development uh, or bringing down the production costs. And so now we're sort of in this new transitory period and, uh, you know, the, the, the government and the companies have to get control of those costs. The companies getting control of the costs is one of the elements that you write about in this commentary. And I, I found that very interesting given where the program is. You write uh, Lockheed Martin Aeronautics EVP Greg Ulmer says there's serious amount of, of Lockheed and L3 Harris management attention being spent on the Block 4 problems that the aircraft has. That sounds to me like that means those companies also understand that this is at a, a critical moment for the program. Is that a fair read on my part? Absolutely. And I mean, this is uh, a, a incredibly important program to all the companies involved, uh, primarily the two primes, Lockheed on the airframe, uh, and then uh, Raytheon Technologies, Pratt & Whitney on the engine side. Uh, obviously, they're going to be responsible for a lot of their uh, subcontractors. So, uh, you know, uh, L3 Harris uh, on the um, TR3 upgrade. Uh, and so really, the, and, and there's two components, uh, what Mr. Ulmer was talking about. Uh, there is actually a significant capability upgrade going on 
called follow-on modernization. There's two, two halves of that, block four and then TR3. Uh, and so we're still actually doing some uh, pretty important technical development. Uh, so there's a little bit of R&D flavor to this. Uh, and then there's also a, a maintenance flavor. So there, there's a lot that these companies have to get their arms around. Uh, and I think that's what Congress is kind of signaling almost a timeout or a pause while uh, everybody gets that kind of under wraps. What does that pause mean for the program itself, for those 600 aircraft that are already, um, that are already operating? Or since they're out there, are they out there? And that's pretty much it. Right, yeah, no, so I meant more of a pause in terms of a Washington procurement sense, in terms of a budgetary sense. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, right now you've got a new administration, new Secretary of Defense, new Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, a bunch of senior folks who have yet to sort of commit to the program officially. So I think a lot of people in Washington are waiting to see what the 22 budget and more importantly, the 23 budget, which will sort of incorporate a lot of the longer term planning. Uh, in terms of the aircraft that are uh, out in the field operating today, I think at the at the House hearing that you know we're kind of referencing, um, you know both company both companies uh, Lockheed on the aircraft side uh, and uh, Raytheon uh, Technologies on the engine side uh, are really stepping up their efforts to uh, improve spare parts availability, depot maintenance on the engines. Um, and, and really uh, uh, train, you know, stand up logistics spaces and things like that. So, I mean, I think that there's a two, two, two pronged effort here that, that needs to happen. At the, happen. Uh, at the hearing that we're referencing, one of the witnesses was Diana Maurer from the Government Accountability Office. Um, I referenced the work that she and her team have done about the sustainability costs here. What was your takeaway from that testimony and the numbers that she laid out in particular, Roman? So, so clearly, uh, they're daunting uh, if, you know, things continue on the trajectory uh, they're at. And, you know, GAO, uh, you know, clearly F-35 is, is the most expensive program and probably the most audited program uh, in the history of all uh, defense programs. Uh, and GAO is probably embedded uh, and knows the program as well as, uh, as, the, as the government and the companies. Um, but, but, you know, her work is really focusing on those longer term sustainability costs. And as you get to, you know, 2,500 aircraft or, or so in, in, in U.S. service uh, and, and uh, more so even with U.S. allies, uh, if you don't control those costs, they, they do get to be unaffordable. Uh, and I think that's the challenge that the, that the services are grappling with. So, I mean, spare parts availability, uh, engine overhaul. Um, the Alice system, which is uh, changing to uh, an, another name uh, and, and, and a newer, you know, a really comprehensive uh, maintenance system. Uh, th these are all things that, uh, you know, GAO has, has referenced and, and I think uh, rightfully continues to, uh, to harp on as things that will move the needle in terms of the cost. About 30 seconds left, Roman. What are the markers that you'll look for as this process moves along both appropriations, authorization, and just general oversight? Sure. Uh, so one is budget release. Uh, you know, right now, I think we're expecting hopefully maybe a May 10, May 17 federal budget release. And it'll be uh, important to see what the request is. Uh, I believe DOD is, is planning on requesting uh, around 85 aircraft, uh, 85 F-35s of all three flavors, the A, B and C model. Uh, so seeing what uh, what that looks like. 
Uh, we won't have a five-year plan, uh, or that's what's anticipated. There won't be a five-year plan, so we'll uh, need to uh, just you know hone in on the one year. And then we'll be looking to see uh, what the additional committees, right? We had one uh, defense committee, the House Armed Services Committee, uh, but we'll have to see how the Senate uh, authorizers as well as both uh, appropriations committees. So it's going to be a long summer. Uh, there will be a lot of scrutiny, and, uh, and I think we'll want to see how that improves. Roman, thanks very much for your time today. It's great to have you on the program. Great to speak with you, Francis. Thank you. Up next, some of the biggest threats from China could be coming from space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. can prepare for warfare in orbit. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The intelligence community says China's weaponizing space to, quote, match or exceed U.S. capabilities in space. The Center for Strategic and International Studies has a new evaluation of those threats from China and other adversaries. Caitlin Johnson's deputy director of the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS. Caitlin, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues write in this work, 2020 was largely a year of continuity and predictability in space. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, given where we are in, in our space journey? Uh, probably a good thing, because nothing horribly unexpected happened. Um, you know, I think 2020 was relatively quiet, at least on the counter space uh, front, these threats in space. But for the civil space side, uh, we saw some great success from, from nations all around the world. Um, and that's, I think, where the accountability and predictability came into. You note in this work a number of things that Space Force accomplished, uh, and several of them you've talked about on this program before, the Space Power Doctrine for Space Forces, um, and you uh, note the Commander's Strategic Vision uh, that came out in February. What are the pieces of those that mean the most, do you think, to the other military services outside Space Force for where the military is going broadly? Sure, well, I think the... the um the doctrine was a great step forward for the Space Force to set the tone for how they want to continue to work in space. Um, what I'm really looking forward to that's supposed to come out in the next week or so um, is the the personnel guidance. So for the guardians, the space officers themselves, how they're going to um, continue to organize and support the people who are doing the space mission, as well as bring in people from the other services, and they're releasing a report on uh, how the Space Force is going to be digital first or a digital service. I'm very interested in seeing how they've brought in, because both of those recommendations were something that were really important to Congress when they were establishing the Space Force. You and your colleagues have been doing this work for a number of years. What are the trend lines that you see? How are things developing year on year in space, both in regards to the United States and in regards to our potential adversaries, Caitlin? Sure. So this is the fourth year we've written this report, along with our colleagues at the Secure World Foundation. And what we've both found is a continual increase in um, in development and testing of counter space weapons, not just these direct ascent ASAPs, so missiles launched from Earth that intercept a target in space, but also other counter space weapons that are being used in 
gray zone areas, other areas of irregular warfare like jamming that can really disrupt communications and GPS signals that impact our troops. And so we've seen all of these attacks occur in the past couple of years and they just continue to build and be used in, in um, different areas of, of other conflict. You go, in this work, you assess what is happening in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, the four nations named in the national defense strategy, national security strategy, and so on as potential adversaries of the United States. The only other country that you call out with its own chapter is India. What's significant about what India as our ally, or at least not our adversary, uh, what's significant about what they're doing in space, Caitlin? Great question. So we have an entire chapter devoted to India because they have been very prominent in developing their own counter space weapon arsenal. So in 2019, India tested a direct ascent ASAT. They intercepted a satellite um, as it was orbiting over Earth, uh, destroying it, causing a lot of debris to come back into Earth's atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere and burn up on, on descent, but also a couple of pieces, you know, stayed in orbit. And so they definitely are are continuing to pursue these kind of counter space capabilities, I think, uh, partially as as their own kind of defense to, uh, as they look towards their adversary of China. Our goals in space are rather clear. I think the other nations that you called on here, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, their goals in space are rather clear. What are India's goals in space, Caitlin? What do they, are they looking at just defensive posture or are they eventually thinking about an offensive posture too? I think it's mostly defensive for now. I think what's really a, a prominent goal for India as well is their civil space capabilities. So they've, uh, had a, an unsuccessful uh, lunar mission that failed a year or two ago, and um, they're working on a, another uh, test that will send a rover to the moon. And so it's not just space from the military side, but from, from the civilian side as well. And I think it, um, for them, is investing in, in STEM education and in their people and their economy, but also as their prominence as a, a world player in space. You know I love the question, what will you watch? And so I was uh, very happy to see that the last, quest, uh, last chapter in this report is what to watch. What should we watch, Caitlin? What, give me a synopsis of that chapter. Sure, so I think what's really interesting about the 2021 report that we just released is that on the counter space side, China was actually relatively quiet in 2020, possibly because of the pandemic. Um, but Russia was incredibly active in counter space developments. And so I expect these to continue. Um, Russia tested two direct ascent ASAT weapons, as well as several on orbit capabilities. And while a lot of talk surrounds China, especially from the US side in our intelligence community, we cannot forget that Russia is also pursuing these developments as well. And so we need to be tracking um, both. And I expect both of them to continue to use and operate space weapons to train their soldiers and their uh, their militaries to uh, use space as um, as an enabler. Caitlin Johnson, thanks very much. As always, great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to her work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, new leaders could mean a digital look for acquisitions at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the digital mission expands at the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, you can find it at govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The Defense Digital Service is overseeing a pilot project that frees up more than 175 million internet addresses. It's the latest example of how the department's relying on its digital arm for all kinds of operations. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform, and he's writing about the digital future of the federal government in GovExec. Stan, welcome. It's good to have you on the program. You call Mike Brown's selection as undersecretary for A&S the most interesting appointment yet by the Biden administration. Why do you think that's the case, Stan? Well, uh, Brown comes to the job with some of the most unique qualifications of anybody we've seen, certainly in my career. Uh, he's not deep in the defense industry. He doesn't come out of the defense industry at all. He comes out of commercial technology. He was the CEO of Symantec. Uh, his defense experience really is the fact that he was running the Defense Innovation Unit uh, for the last couple of years. He's an expert on cyber um, and so forth. So he's really interesting, good qualifications, but very different than we've seen in previous people in that position. And I think that pretends the potential uh, for some significant change, at least attention to some of the barriers that we've seen that are still existing to, to, to really getting the acquisition system moving as we would hope. You reference uh, Mike's experience at DIU, and you write uh, that the attention that people haven't paid to that could mean uh, what it could mean for how the Pentagon accesses, adopts, and adapts to new technologies and new ways of doing business. You and I have talked a lot, especially about the new ways of doing business. What are the digital implications for new ways of doing business, the acquisition process, and what the department's trying to acquire, Stan? Well, so if, if you think about the intersection of acquisition and digital, let's just talk about what they're trying to acquire, as you just put it. Um, the department, whether it's on the mission side within uh, offensive and defensive systems, uh, as well as on the business operations side, uh, has been consistently trying to uh, modernize and enhance the performance of its capabilities. And that is by definition, a, a trend towards digital transformation. So what does that mean from an acquisition perspective? Mike Brown comes out of a, the Defense Innovation Unit, which is uh, completely reliant on and, and a significant user of other transactions authorities. He is aware of, I'm sure, some of the problems that we're seeing with OTAs. I have a report coming out in about a month or so on OTAs where we found that the biggest problem right now is this transition from the prototype period into production. A lot of the new players that have come into the market are exiting because of, of creeping back of old government unique requirements once you get into that longer term production environment. Mike Brown's aware of that. And the question is, what is he gonna do? How does he start trying to get the ship even further steered in the right direction as opposed to sort of stalled where it might be? I think it also accelerates attention to digital tools. Coming out of a technology background like he does, uh, his alliances within the department. And then you look at other agencies, as I said in the, in the report, in the, in the article, um, there are a number of people who are very, very focused on digital as an enabler for real transformation. So to me, the big question is, A, how do we use digital from an acquisition perspective? B, how do we use a more alternative acquisition or a different alternative uh, acquisition processes to get the full access to capabilities? And then C, what kind of major business process or engineering are we willing to do to enable us to access commercial capabilities? And I think that's, that's a line that Mike Brown's going to understand better than anybody. In the context of the way you just explained that, Stan, then it makes perfect sense. And it's not that it didn't make sense before you explained it, uh, that his appointment, it did. Um, but especially in the context of the way you just explained it, because the, the, uh, the services are establishing their own software for, uh, forges. They have chief software officers in some cases. And so it sounds like what you expect to see is that essentially Mike will become a chief software officer of sorts for the Defense Department in that role of ANS. 
That's an interesting way to put it. I don't know if I put it in exactly those terms. That's one way to think about it. I, I put it in a slightly different way. We've seen over the last, and you and I have talked about this many times, over the last 15, 20 years or more, a very consistent process of what we used to call e-gov and now digital kind of moving forward in government. Each, it's, it's a nonpartisan issue. Each administration is built on the previous administration's achievements. What I think the Mike Brown appointment, to a certain extent like Robin Carnahan's appointment at GSA, suggest is, and I use the term not meaning in a patronizing way, the maturation of the digital uh, thinking teams. The teams that were there 10 and 12 years ago were sort of on the outside. Now they're on the inside and they're in leadership positions. And so now the opportunity is to take what was the other way of thinking and mainstream it more going forward. And I think that's where you might see uh, the process turn. So the reference that you make there, I think, is interesting because when uh, Mikey Dickerson left U.S. Digital Services four or five years ago, there was there were questions in the community. What was the future of USDS? Matt Cutts just announced he's leaving not too long ago. There's nobody that I've heard that's saying, I wonder if USDS is going to survive. This That organization and this concept more broadly are both a thing in the government now, aren't they, Stan? Very much so. And then I'd add one layer to that, Francis. There are a number of people. Robin Carnahan's a great example. Uh, Dave Zvenyak, Chris Heisen. You look at a number of the appointments are folks that came out of the 18F slash USDS community back 10 and 12 years ago. They are not at USDS or 18F anymore. They're now in agencies doing operations. So you have this transition from, in some cases, of senior people from that community into senior actual leadership and, and, and management roles. Stan, we have about 30 seconds left. What do you watch? I'm watching, I wanna see, I think this is a great opportunity. I think it's very exciting. To me, the big question is how much real process reengineering do we do? Because I think that's the key to really transforming and using digital in the best way. If we just digitize existing stuff, it's not gonna make as big a difference. It's all about really transforming the processes behind the wall that's gonna enable us to get where we need to go. Stan Soloway, thanks as always, great to see you. Great to see you, Francis, thank you. You can find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv resources. And if you miss an episode of Government Matters, that's on our website too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GovMatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle 
provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want, to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden 
off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.